a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ole Oliker, speaking to you from my chilly Brussels attic. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, also speaking from Brussels today. We are uh, back today to take uh, a closer look at what is happening in territories of Ukraine that Russia has been occupying and some of the territories that Ukraine has been able to liberate. Uh, what we want to do is um, unpack a little bit of how the escalation from simmering conflict into full-scale war since Russia's invasion in February has affected people living in eastern Ukraine. So the region of Ukraine we're talking about is the Donbass. Uh, Donbass is a contraction of Donetsk Basin. It's traditionally coal country, although under Soviet rule, the region also became a really pretty big steel producer. And as in other places around the world that have historically relied on mining and related industries, it was having a rough time economically for a while before war broke out. But of course, since 2014, all of that has been exacerbated by war. Никаких вооруженных сил, никаких инструкторов российских даже на юго-востоке Украины нет, не было и нет. It is in Donbass that Russia was supporting these two de facto so-called independent governments, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, for the eight years prior to its full-scale invasion. And those, of course, are the two uh, governments that it recognized as independent on the eve of its invasion of Ukraine this February. It is the population of Donbass and its suffering that Moscow has invoked to justify its invasion. Uh, by saying it's protecting the region's Russian-speaking population by waging war on Ukraine. And with Russia's self-proclaimed annexation of territories in eastern and southeastern Ukraine in late September, including the Donbas, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, all of them rather than just the portions that had been governed by its proxies during the eight years of war before the invasion. With, uh, with that annexation, Moscow has further anchored itself in insisting that these regions and their residents are part of Russia, are part of Russia's national identity, even as the actual realities of Russian occupation have been quite harsh for many of the residents. Now, the significant advances by the Ukrainian military since late August and early September have resulted in the liberation of some of these lands. So what we want to talk about today is what happens next. Ukrainians have been arguing over whether, to be blunt about it, the people who survived occupation are victims or collaborators or both in some way, and how to tell uh, which is which. Uh, the choices the Ukrainian government makes in the weeks and months to come are going to be laying the groundwork for the region's future. To talk about the complexities of the Donbass region, we're delighted to welcome Brian Milikowski, 
Brian has been working on humanitarian and development projects in Luhansk and is an expert on economic recovery in eastern Ukraine. He's been writing about the impact of Russia's occupation on eastern Ukraine for foreign affairs, the Guardian and open democracy, among others. He has lived in Severodonetsk in eastern Ukraine for a number of years prior to the war and is now joining us from Latvia. Brian, welcome to War and Peace. Thanks so much for having me. Brian, um, it's hard to do this quickly, but I'm going to ask you to do the impossible and tell us just in a few words, the eight years, almost eight years of war before Russia launched its invasion in February had already done a lot of damage to these territories and to Donbass on both sides, on both the Ukrainian government-controlled side of the line and on the side of the line controlled by the Russian-backed proxies. How would you describe what uh, what those eight years did to the region? Well, it really did create two realities um, that were in a sort of very uh, difficult dialogue with each other that unfortunately was often in, in the form of this sort of low-level artillery warfare that continued throughout those eight years. There was a bit of a sort of uh, sorting wherein a lot of people with pro-Ukrainian feeling did with time exit the, the Russian controlled areas. Um, but at the same time, sort of the the intense Russia Russian and separatist information environment in those in those territories would be literally projected sometimes by radio signal into the government controlled areas. And, you know, when it began, the uh, the Donbass, you know, had a sort of urban core surrounded by, by a, a rural area that had a little bit more traditional links to Ukrainian culture. And most of that core, urban core, ended up in the so-called Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. So in some ways, that was, you know, the sort of hyper-concentrated territory that was very amenable, not universally, but, but amenable to... Um, to Russia's messaging and to their separatist project that they launched in the region. And the continuing ongoing low-level artillery warfare that from 2015 to 2022 was killing uh, from a few dozen to a few hundred people a year after the much more intense fighting of 2014-2015, it did help um, sort of keep the blood up in the conflict, keep the ideological radicalization of the conflict that I think is particularly seen in the in the so-called people's republics. There's an unaddressed, so far unhealed trauma there uh, of the violence that people live through. People also live through violence on the Ukrainian side, but, but uh, the majority of civilian casualties were taking place in the in the Luhansk and Donetsk people's republics, so-called, as, as the territory that was being most actively contested. And so you you saw sort of those two Donbasses um, not growing necessarily closer together over the eight years, even after the intensity of the war went down. So how would you say that the past eight years of the conflict, and particularly Russia's influence in the region, have shaped the perceptions about national identity of the people uh, living in the Donbass regarding Russia and Ukraine? So on the government-controlled side, I would say there was a modest but important consolidation of Ukrainian, pro-Ukrainian feeling. And part of that was definitely Russia's fault, uh, because it certainly did not create a showplace in the so-called People's Republics, um, both because of their economic isolation, which is partially due to Ukrainian policy to not allow trade uh, to, with the industrial economy of those areas, 
but to a great extent because of the absolutely colonial, exploitative relationship of the Russian elites that were running the place to the local economy. Um, the traditional mining and industrial economy in those so-called people's republics uh, was in disastrous condition by 2021. Disastrous. Um, and so people on the government-controlled side who also suffered economically from all of these traditionally traditional economic connections that were frayed or severed, they nonetheless were um, definitely living in a more functional economy, in a more functional system of law and order, definitely, not rule of the automatic Um and, you know, pro-Ukrainian civil society, I think, felt the wind at its back. And I think quite a bit of people who had been amenable to separatism in 2014, having this very dark example nearby of where that led to, uh, and seeing some very good benefits of Ukraine investing in infrastructure, uh, public spaces, public services in the government-controlled areas, I think you really saw, as I said, a sort of consolidation of uh, positive or neutral feeling. And neutral feeling was enough for Ukraine in a lot of cases. They were happy, the government was happy if some people who had been actively anti-government became neutral. And so that tendency is what I observed living in Severodonetsk for six years. And I think it helps explain why um, why there was so much uh, different re- response in 2022 than 2014 to Russia's actions. Do we know much about what it's like in the territories that had been uh, controlled by Russia's proxies and continue to be controlled by them now? I mean, not the territory that was occupied by Russia over the last eight months, but the territory that uh, was cut off and difficult to access for eight years and is now even more cut off. Um, We knew, I think the most clear impression we had from it was from social media, including the Russian social media that are very popular there. Also, Telegram became quite an extraordinary source. There are Ukrainian analysts and journalists who basically that was their job was sort of looking into the window of those territories via social media. A prominent one is Denis Kazansky, who who does it with a very, very strong pro-Ukrainian uh, viewpoint. But for people who might want a little window into there, you can watch his videos on YouTube. They're quite fascinating. I would say um, you saw, you know, sort of stagnation there that I think a a high level, a large amount of people there could remain ideologically activated to to the extent that the war had become very distant for a lot of people in Ukraine, except maybe close to the front. It it remained the daily reality. But at the same time, it was impossible to conceal the frustration with with the economic situation, socioeconomic situation, the, the utter stagnation, the lack of development, despite what people had been promised about getting closer to Russia. Um, which burst out into into strikes in 2020 and 2021, which was unheard of because the so-called People's Republics are police states. They are run by local and Russian security services. Uh, there is not functioning democracy. Strikes were extraordinarily risky, uh, and there was a huge wave of them. Um, I'd say during the most intense sort of everywhere economic downturn that was uh, that that happened because of COVID, it was very intense uh, in those territories. So um, I'd say we have that sort of combination of economic frustration with continued ideological activization of a large part of the population. There's also, according to you know, what surveys have been possible to do there, ZOIS from Germany probably did the best of them ever a few years ago. There's also a latent group of people there waiting for the return of Ukraine, but they have a much less of an ability to speak up 
And at best, you catch their voices anonymously on, on social media. So, okay, let's talk about territory that Russia newly occupied over the last eight months. And they didn't get the welcome they expected, as you explained, that there had been this rising anti-Russian sentiment. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about how the Russians responded to getting uh, to facing an unfriendly population rather than the friendly one that they expected? So they definitely didn't get the sort of bread and salt celebratory reception that they thought they would. Luhansk and Donetsk, the government-controlled areas that were, you know, just recently occupied, do have, I would say, in Ukraine still some of the highest levels of Russian sympathy. And there is a part of the population that was certainly happy to see them. But in 2014, they were able to raise, you know, a tsunami of indigenous support, a catastrophe for Ukraine that I'm not sure has been entirely still addressed and sort of processed. That didn't happen in 2022. They were initially met with protest across, especially Luhansk Oblast in the in the rural areas that have that somewhat more traditional uh, Ukrainian sort of rural life way uh, and and deeper roots in, in historical Ukraine uh, than the the sort of industrial Soviet Donbas. And of course, um, after a period of bewilderment, unfortunately, Russia turned to its most typical practice in response to protest, which was violence. They opened fire on on some of these protests. And that went uh, together with um, a sweep they were doing through those territories to pick up people with openly pro-Ukrainian views, people who had served in the army, their relatives. So also the kind of terror um, and intimidation we've seen in places like uh, Bucha and Irpin near near Kiev. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's still a black box for us. Uh, what they did with some of those people, there have been disappearances across eastern Ukraine as well. Um and so they turned to basically trying to to whittle down the local population to the part that is most supportive of them by disappearing some of the most vocally pro-Ukrainian, intimidating others, and initially leaving the gates open for pro-Ukrainians to leave before sort of sealing off the territory and really kicking in to um, the kind of intense ideological processing that is also part of the Russian model of occupation, you know, that these territories are under right now. Uh Everywhere reminded Russia is with you forever, you know, purging Ukrainian history books from local libraries, engaging kids in these um, Soviet style patriotic youth organizations, um, this sort of Soviet cargo cult mixed with some Russian imperial stuff as well. Uh, and they're trying to just sort of recreate the population that that they wish that they had found initially, partially by initially purging its most pro-Ukrainian elements. I mean, Ukraine hasn't been particularly kind to individuals it's deemed as Russian collaborators throughout the war. With Ukrainian forces now retaking large swathes of Russian-held territory in East and the Southeast, what does this mean for individuals accused of collaboration? How are they identified and can they expect a fair treatment? Yeah, I think that's really a key question right now. I'd say we're just getting into the process, so we can only make initial observations. For instance, the security services in liberated Kharkiv Oblast, the Ukrainian security services, have set up a filtration camp in the community of Shevchenkova. Now, that 
term triggers immediate sort of panic for some people because, for instance, Russia has horrific filtration camps around Mariupol. Now, French journalists who were able to get there and speak to some people who were detained said they saw no indication of abuse and no one interviewed um, spoke about abuse. And it generally didn't look like a prison camp, but it was... Um, a space that locals would be called into who I think had been reported by other locals or very often people gave themselves away on public social media. I mean, I think the state security services began by just looking at, you know, Russian social media and identifying people who had believed that Russia was here to stay and were celebrating and, and taking part. And Russia also, in order to burn the bridges behind people, would love to take pictures of them collaborating and publish them. So, you know, it was not, I think, difficult to find some of the most vocal collaborators. And in the case of Kharkiv Oblast, the Ukrainian army got in before many of them had time to flee. Now, are they getting due process? Are they getting um, fair treatment? I think in a year's time, we'll be able to, to make conclusions. I would say initially, it suggests Ukraine is taking pains to, to use due process. I think that the Ukrainian government appreciates the contrast it needs to maintain with the way that Russia acts. Although there is an intense appetite in Ukrainian civil society for punishment of people who are outright collaborators. But then the problem is you also have multiple categories of collaboration uh, or sort of blending into just sympathy. Uh, you know, people who are out waving little Russian flags at a holiday, um, have they committed a crime do they need to be punished? Do they need at least to be warned? You know, all the way up to people who were collaborating with uh, the Russian security services and and turning in their pro-Ukrainian neighbors. The latter very clearly need to face legal consequences. Do the former, do the people in the middle of that spectrum, like school teachers that stayed on the job for various motivations, some very ideological, some because they need the money, some because they didn't want to leave the kids Ukraine, I think, is groping its way through that very difficult question. Um, I spoke with some human rights organizations on the ground that said they haven't yet been getting the kind of complaints um, that they got in 2014, 2015, when things were a little more chaotic after the first invasion by Russia. But they also said that the Ukrainian security services are much better organized than they used to be and, and, and better at managing information. So I wish I could give you a clearer answer. I can only give you the impression that Ukraine is trying to maintain the contrast with Russia's absolutely lawless nihilistic behavior with due process, but struggling also with, with the enormous appetite in civil society for people to be punished who welcomed and became part of the occupation machine. When I was in Ukraine in September, people argued about this quite openly in front of me and you know discussed this with each other, discussed it with me talked about presumptions of guilt versus presumptions of innocence. And one of the things I found really striking was that almost none of them equated this, for instance, to what their own family had done through, oh, I don't know, say years of Soviet rule and Russian rule before that, right? Uh, you will have people who tell the story about how their families had always resisted everybody. But since most families had not always resisted everybody, you know, there's a long history of people who taught school and went to work and did their jobs and maybe even joined the Communist Party and... Uh, worked for the police and did whatever else. And I wonder kind of what's your impression of why, why the disconnect? Why do you, why does this seem like a completely different thing or does it? 
Well, I suppose most people of young enough for us to have conversations with never sort of faced in Soviet times a point when they had to make that decision. They were born into that reality. I'd say a lot of people are very angry now with collaborators who make a conscious choice to collaborate after knowing full well what was going on the last eight years. Now, some who did so do so because they think what happened the last eight years is dramatically different from what most Ukrainians do. They think Russia is defending a a beleaguered minority, um, be it ethnic Russians, Russian speakers, or actually more accurately, it's it's sponsoring an ideological faction within Ukraine that is aligned with it. That's actually Russia's goal. Um, I mean, the Russian speaker, Russian ethnic, uh, you know, angle is is a red herring, as as I'm sure. You, you appreciate. Um, so I think what makes people angry is like, you made the conscious choice. You weren't born into this. You know, you were, I think people are furious, for instance, when they see like teachers or local cultural workers who would be out in their Ukrainian Vishivanka on public holidays, who ran patriotic summer camps for kids, uh, you know, in Ukraine under Ukrainian government. Um, who sometimes were sort of demonstrative about always making sure to use state language at, at teachers' meetings. On Telegram, there's this whole wave of anger and these side-by-side pictures. You often see people posting like, this was you a year ago in your Vishivanka, and now here you are with the Russian tricolor uh, you know, ribbon on your, on your shirt at Russia Day celebrations. You know, do, do you have any ideology at all? Do you have any principles at all? I mean, there, there are definitely people who are collaborators in this situation. And then there are, as I said, whole other categories, degrees of sympathy. And people are also very angry at those who just sympathized. Um, and that's, as I said, a much more kind of um, gray ethical area to get into in, in imagining how they should be treated. And we've also, or at least I've seen maybe... Um Maybe what I've seen is inaccurate, but I've seen some reporting of attacks on women who are believed to have had sexual relations uh, voluntarily with Russian soldiers. Certainly, we've heard lots of stories of uh, rape and sexual assault. And, you know, you can see how these two things could uh, intermix and intermingle in particularly ugly ways, but it triggers for me images of women in in Europe after German occupation with their heads shaved uh, accused of the same things. Is that something we're seeing or is uh, is it exaggerated? There are, I have seen concerns um, from people that uh, women would be targeted uh, because of perceptions of their neighbors that they were in intimate relations with the occupiers, which as you have brought up, can be something imposed on them by the occupiers that they might be forced into. Um Certainly. I mean, there's, of course, just an, an incredible range of, of possibilities of ways that, that, that women, unfortunately, can in, in conflict zones can be bent to the will of men with automatics that, you know, cover a wide range of, of intimacy. And I don't think that necessarily people are, are appreciating um, appreciating that or, or maybe aware of the horrible history of sexual exploitation in, in armed conflicts. When you look at like these telegram groups that I monitor, you know, initially they were called like local collaborators uh, and sympathizers. And then a lot of them after time added this phrase in, in Russian or Ukrainian, shkuri, which means like a, it's like a, it's a very derogatory term for a woman who's uh, in their interpretation sort of loose. Um, 
And you started seeing, you know, screenshots from social media of like women posing with Russian soldiers, um, sometimes quite intimate pictures where, I mean, it was pretty clear they had an intimate relationship. Uh, and of course, I mean, tons of red flags here, um, extremely thin ice to be getting onto. Um, but again, you know, there's a very sincere anger among, especially people who had to flee these communities, seeing any expression of sympathy, acceptance, uh, support. And I think, you know, sexual expressions for, for I think, obvious reasons inspire a sort of particularly intense and angry reaction. I'd say this is a very, uh, probably the thing, one of the things that worries me the most about striking the balance between what civil Ukrainian civil society expects for, uh, for a good concept of being responsible before the law with the potential for something like a, uh, like a mob reaction to alleged collaboration. So I was wondering, you know, how deep are these divisions? Do you think that there is going to be need for a a system like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa or the local courts that were set up in Rwanda following the, the genocide to enable the communities to come back together to reconcile? Or, you know, can can these issues be dealt with through the normal uh, justice processes? It's going to be difficult in Ukrainian civil society to accept something like a Truth and Reconciliation Committee or Commission because the phrasing there of reconciliation kind of triggers of an extremely sensitive topic for Ukrainians, which is, you know, the characterization by Russia and some other actors of the last eight years as a civil war. You know, Ukrainians really push back on Russia's narrative there was not a civil war for the last eight years. There was a Russian invasion that took advantage of a civil rift in part of the country uh, to take part in these sort of auxiliary structures, military and civil, of Russia's invasion. And those are what, that's what we think of as the so-called Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. And yet that rift was real, is real. Um, and sort of within Russia's invasion, there is the very serious question about uh, what to do, especially in the East, in the Donbass, with persistent levels of support and even collaboration, which certainly went down from 2014 to 2022. Uh, but there are still communities in the East right now under occupation where a rather significant part of the population is, is sympathizing uh, or collaborating. But what is going to be the format for addressing this this rift and this persistent alienation from the Ukrainian state among that part of the population, uh, you know, part of it will be legal means. That's, you know, Ukraine trying to use uh, due process to make collaborators uh, responsible for the crime they committed. But there's going to need to be other means and other platforms as well. And and I don't have an answer yet what they will look like. It's one of the really difficult questions ahead of Ukraine as we go forward. I suppose the other experience, though, is the experience not of civil war, but the experience of coming out of occupation. And that also, you know, I mentioned uh, Europe after World War II. That's it's also not uh, something that's unique to Ukraine. Sadly, um, we're not going to have time to unpack that here, though I think it would really be worth unpacking. 
Um, for the time being, though, we have a lot of food for thought. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on War and Peace to discuss this. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. To read more of Brian's very interesting work on the eastern Ukraine, you can check out his recent articles in The Guardian and Open Democracy. You can also find Brian on Twitter. He's at B. Milikowski. We at Crisis Group have also written a good bit on uh, the situation in Ukraine, on the war, and prior to Russia's invasion on the economic situation in eastern Ukraine. Uh, we uh, suggest that if you are interested in these topics, uh, we are also a good source. Uh, please do take a look at our website. And you can follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. I'm at Olya Olaker, and I'm also now at Olya Olaker on Mastodon.online. If uh, I'm still figuring it out, but I am there um, and hope to have it sorted soon enough to actually be useful soon. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schraub. Uh, but our biggest thanks, as always, to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, please do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We look forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. And until then, goodbye. Goodbye until next time.